Well, good morning, Grace Church of DuPage. It is so good to be with you. Boy, is it good to be with you. Hey, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8 in your Bibles. Um, if you're using a pew Bible, um, that's on page I have no idea. But I do know that it is after Romans chapter 7. That much I can give you. From there, you're on your own. Our sermon text today is going to be verses 18 through 25. And it's really, it's really hard to resist the urge to basically start at verse 1 and read all the way through. But we are going to start a bit back from the sermon text. So we're going we're gonna to actually start in verse 16. 16. So we're going to read Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. My Father, there are so many things in this passage, Father, that we can't understand with our finite human minds. Yet, Father, you have, you have purpose to include this in your revelation to your people so, Father, because of that, we are assured that this word is indeed for us as much as it was for the church in Rome. And we are assured that your spirit will teach us. Your spirit will show us everything we need to know. So, Father, use this text for our good. Use this text to draw those who don't know Christ to Christ. Use this passage to encourage and strengthen those of us who are in Christ and long for the day when our Lord, our Redeemer, our Savior, Christ Jesus comes 
and remakes all things for his glory. So bless us now, Father, as we spend some time examining your precious holy word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I was reading a book on preaching because I need a lot of help. And I was, and, and, and the author made a statement about how what you use as sermon illustrations tells a lot about you. It's like a personality test in some ways. And so I examined myself and I found, you know what I use more than anything? Food. Can you believe that? I found that hard to believe, but the data don't lie. So, and, I, and it was weird because I, I, I read this passage of the book after I kind of wrote a lot of my message. And because here's the opening words of my message. And again, this is before I read that book. It says, I have shocking news. I love buffets. Isn't that incredible? What a prophetic word from God. So, so originally, so it's not shocking, right? I've, I've spent some time at the buffet. It's pretty clear. But what originally drew me to buffets was the principle that I valued quantity over quality. No matter what they charged me, they were losing money, right? And I didn't really care about how good the food was. But now as I'm older and with like things like Yelp and, and Google reviews and all that stuff, I actually found it is possible to have quantity and quality. Now you're going to pay for it, but it is possible to have both of those. And when you go into a great buffet, and I'm not going to spend all day talking about buffets, although if you want to offer to take me one after service, that's a guaranteed yes. But if you go into a great buffet, you're overwhelmed. You're just overwhelmed by all of the choices and all of the smells, and you're imagining all these tastes. There's so much there. There's so many choices. You could just camp on one dish all night. But in doing that, you kind of cheat the rest of the buffet. In some ways, and in many ways, I see Romans chapter 8, which has always been one of those chapters that's kind of been hallowed in a particular way by the church throughout the ages. I see Romans chapter 8 as a great buffet. One of the most glorious chapters of Scripture, full of just, full of dishes, if you want to use the buffet, right? Full of just... It, immensely tasting, nourishing dishes, but full of truths that are glorious truths of the Christian faith. Beginning with, beginning with, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And ending with mountaintops, like what's going to separate us from the love of God? Nothing, nothing, nothing is going to separate us from the love of God. Beautiful buffet, and today, we come kind of in the middle of all of this. We're going to come to verses 18 through 25. And this, in and of itself, is a buffet. And there are some things in this passage today that we're going to have to take by faith because it's hard to even imagine some of the things Paul is saying because they're so astoundingly great. And like any... Any guy who trends like, uh, you know, like to be in the ivory tower and love to be me and my computer, 
it'd be very easy to teach like a three-hour seminary class, and I don't think that is appropriate for corporate worship, though it has its place. So all I want to do today is just make four simple observations. Just four simple observations right from the text. Nothing complicated. But before we do that, before we make those four observations from 18 through 25, I think we have to be settled on one absolute truth. You ready for this? Here's the absolute truth. We have to have in our minds suffering. Suffering is a reality in this age. Does anybody disagree with that? Well, duh, no. Suffering is a reality in this age. We read in verses 16 and 17, that's where we began our reading. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, provided, as long as we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So verse 16 tells us that we are children of God. Verse 17 tells us that we are heirs. Heirs are people who are bound to receive an inheritance. And who is the rich one giving the inheritance? God. We will enter into the riches of God someday. We are heirs of God and now this is where, if is that brain? I mean, the brain almost starts smoking if you start thinking of these things. We are fellow heirs with Christ. So our inheritance is entirely linked to Jesus. He entered into, he earned his inheritance, which is the universe and all things in it, through obedience to the Father. Executing the Father's plan to rescue sinners by taking on human flesh, dying, and being resurrected. So, so Christ entered into his inheritance, and he's awaiting the fullness of it on that last day. We enter into our inheritance through Christ. By coming to him by faith. And we share. This is, this is what is just so astounding. We share in that inheritance with Christ. We enter our inheritance through Christ. And we share the inheritance with Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. And on his way to his glorification... A step on the way towards that inheritance, Christ suffered. In our road to glorification, brothers and sisters, is suffering. Just like our co-heir, Jesus Christ. As surely as we will be glorified. And if you're a Christian, that is a non-negotiable... We will be glorified someday. We will be body and spirit together 
in a sinless state in God's presence, we will be glorified. As surely as that is, and verse 30 tells us that's sure, absolutely that's sure. We're going to get to that next week. It is equally sure that we will suffer. Christ, in one of his teaching discourses, Sermon on the Mount, from Matthew chapter 5, says those who follow him ought to expect this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. They persecuted the prophets who were before you. Or Paul says to his son Timothy in the faith, in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. They're going to be suffering. It's part and parcel of the kingdom. God's plan, according to his infinite wisdom, his infinite wisdom, not human wisdom, finite wisdom, God's infinite wisdom is that those adopted into the family of God by faith will follow Christ in suffering on the way to the glory of our inheritance. That's what we have to have firmly in our minds to help us understand some of the truths he speaks of in verses 18 through 25. Here's our four things. I'm going to say them all at once, and then I'll repeat them as we go through each one. Here's the things Paul tells the church in Rome based on that suffering leading to glorification. Number one, the sufferings that we experience are nothing compared to what's coming. They're nothing compared to what's coming. Number two, the creation itself is waiting for us to experience what's coming. Number three, both we and the creation are groaning as we're awaiting that coming day. And lastly, that coming day is our hope. And Paul tells us as we await that hope just to be patient, patiently endure. So number one, the sufferings that we experience are nothing compared to what's coming. Look at verse 18 for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So in verse 17, Paul pairs suffer and glorified, so they're linked, and he links them together here again in verse 18. But he says, I'm going to link them, but don't compare them. I do think at the front end, at the front end, there is, there is wisdom in drawing a distinction in types of suffering. In types of suffering. I believe generally there's two types of suffering. Suffering type number one is what I call common suffering. Common suffering. It is a suffering that all of humanity experiences because of the fall. The cursed creation. It is experienced by believer and unbeliever alike. 
Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever alike, you will lose loved ones. There will be sickness. There will be financial trouble. There will be trouble with children. There will be conflict. There will be wars that both believers and unbelievers experience. It is a common suffering that is a result of a, a, a creation that is in bondage to corruption. But then there's what I call particular suffering. Particular suffering is suffering for the sake of Christ. And I think when we, when we look at ver, like verse 17, I think Paul has particular suffering primarily in view. But I don't think common suffering is completely excluded because we know at some point he moves to the fact that the creation is going to have the curse removed. The place from which common suffering originates. But we would say this, whatever type of suffering we experience, and we all experience suffering, it is hard. There is a vividness and intensity and a sharpness to suffering. I, 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 I can't help. I, I, there's folks that, you know, we, we, we talk during the week. Or, there's some folks that are in this body who are really, really suffering and have been suffering for a great period of time. So when Paul says, well, it's not worthy, we don't want to write, we don't want to write off the intensity and the depth and the jaggedness of the suffering because it is a real thing. Sometimes it shakes us to the core. Sometimes it feels like it's going to grind us to dust because it just doesn't let up. Sometimes it wears us out. Sometimes it affects our relationships. Sometimes it makes us afraid. Sometimes it has hopelessness crouching at the door, ready to pounce. And as costly as the suffering is, Paul says it's not even close to the gain of the coming payoff, the inheritance. When we enter into the fullness of our salvation, the fullness of our salvation, when everything that makes us suffer is gone, in this hope we've been saved. When we enter into the presence of God, when our bodies are raised incorruptible, when sin and death is fully banished, and we dwell bodily with God, surrounded by the joy and comfort of his perfection. Clyde and I were talking this morning, and Clyde asked me, he made a statement, I don't, I don't really know exactly what glory is experiencing right now. And I don't know in a detailed sense if we can. But what we can be assured of is that she's in the presence of the Lord where there is immeasurable joy and comfort and peace because of God's greatness. And that will only get better 
when she enters into the absolute fullness of her salvation, when that body is raised from the dead and joined with her spirit to live in God's presence bodily forever. All because of what Jesus Christ has done. Christ be praised. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, and you, this is a familiar verse in verse 17, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. We're going to sing that song, right? I didn't get over my skis there, did I? No, we are singing that song. It's preparing us. So not only do we suffer, but our suffering isn't meaningless. It's purposeful. And what a witness and testimony that is. That's why I think common suffering is definitely spoken of because we can experience common suffering with Christ. We experience common suffering as a way God conforms us further into the image of Christ. So in a world that has to experience the same common suffering and they think it's just absolutely random, it's the crapshoot of evolution, you see, we say, no, that's not the case at all. It's purposeful. And in believers, it is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. That's how Paul's going to finish this passage. But look at those words Paul says, this momentary light affliction. A light affliction? Paul has the gall to call what we're going through a light affliction? A momentary affliction? This has been going on for a long time, Paul. You could hear those suffering in Corinth, and you could hear those suffering in Rome, and you could hear those suffering for Christ throughout the ages. You could hear, you could hear believers even in this room sometimes. We could read those verses and say, really? This, this doesn't feel light. This feels like this is going on and will go on forever. And what Paul says is, yeah, you know what? Compared to eternity, it is momentary. So he's using, he's using comparison here. Compared to the weight, the heaviness of the coming inheritance the weight of suffering is actually light. It's not to denigrate the suffering. That ain't the purpose. Rather, it is to elevate, in human words, elevate the glory of what is coming that is unseen, that we have no point of reference. Nobody walked in this morning and said, yeah, I just got back from a week of experiencing glory. Woo, it was fantastic. We don't have a point of reference. But we take God at his, at his word. We say, this is heavy. This is going on forever. And Paul says, no, I, I know. But compared to what's coming, it is light and it is momentary. Or to use Romans 8 language, back to our text, it is not worthy of being compared to what's coming. That is meant to sustain us as we suffer for him, as we suffer with him, 
in these things. So number one, the sufferings we experience are not worthy, are nothing to be compared to what's coming. Number two, the creation itself is awaiting. It's waiting for us to experience what's coming. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the Son of God, the sons of God, rather. Paul personifies creation. What, is, what does personify mean? It, it makes it sound like a human being. And he says that the creation itself is waiting for the day when we, believers, co-heirs, enter into glory. Man was created by God as the crown jewel of the creation. Supposed to subdue and have dominion over the creation. Put in place to rule as God's image-bearing representatives over the creation. And when Christ comes on the last day, the creation will indeed follow those it was created to lead. That's God's redeemed image bearers. And if you notice, Paul, Paul says it's waiting, it's waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So this unveiling of the fullness of our salvation. And we want to make note of the language there. This glory that is to be revealed is already secure. It just needs to be unveiled. And why is the whole creation waiting for this to happen? Verse 20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. The creation itself suffers. The creation wasn't created cursed. It wasn't created to have all of the brokenness. And I could, I could list them, and a lot of them are going to be nature-driven, but floods, famines, earthquakes, weeds, thistles, blizzards, tornadoes, I can go on and on. It was subjected to this, to this futility. Kind of almost, the, the thought is almost like a frustration by God himself in response to Adam's sin. But when God subjected it, he knew it, there would be a day when he would remake it. Part of the glorious plan of God is to remake all things through the sending of the Son. With that remaking in mind, Paul says God Boy, that's heavy. God subjected the creation, end of verse 20, into 21, in hope. This, this is one of the most astounding verses to me. I, I, have, I have literally chewed on this verse for a couple weeks. And I still, oh man, in hope, 
in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain, follow, enter into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's just astounding. We just, we just, the, the Spirit of God, we just ask that you help us understand this. This is, this is, this is astoundingly beautiful. All because of the work of Jesus Christ to come and do the work that would free the creation. Help us understand this. The creation waits. It longs to join the children of God in being remade in the great renewal. You may have heard the great regeneration that is to come. When we experience the glory of freedom. As you sit there this morning, is there, is there party? Is anybody out there just longing to experience the glory of freedom? I am. My back is killing me as I'm, I can't wait till this goes away. And this is nothing compared to what some of you all are suffering. But this is just part of this corruption that we're in bondage to that someday free because of Christ who sets us free. That's coming. And the creation cannot wait to follow the children of God into the glory of that freedom. A time when all the pain, all the heartache, all the disdain for following Christ, light and darkness, all the trouble here and now, subject symptoms of the bondage to corruption, common suffering, that will all pale in comparison. It's not worthy of being compared to what's coming. We have to believe that by faith. That's now. That's now. That's future. That's what's coming. So point two is the creation itself is waiting for us to experience what's coming and then it's going to follow us. That's future, but what about now? Our third point both we and the creation are groaning as we await for this coming day. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Childbirth, life, these are not the pains of death. Pains that are leading to life, that are leading to birth. The birthing of the new creation. But for now, the creation groans like a woman in labor. Growing in frequency, growing in intensity, until the time for birth comes. That's what the creation does. It's longing in hope for its redemption, for its being remade. But not only the creation awaits, it's us. Do you long for the day 
when Christ returns and all suffering ends. Yeah. It is that thought that sustains us in the now. When all the bad things of this fallen world, sin, death, and hatred, all goes away fully and finally. And as we wait, we groan. We groan under the pressures. We groan under the sufferings. We groan under the travails and trials. But do you see how Paul refers to believers in that verse? Look how Paul, this is actually in verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, and how does he, how does he refer to us? Who have the first fruits of the Spirit. How appropriate, given the day the church has historically celebrated the day of Pentecost. The first fruits of the Spirit the first fruits were the initial first. That's not a difficult thing to figure out, right? The first fruits, the initial fruits given of a great harvest that was to come. Part of the same crop, same crop, but the first and the best of this incredible harvest that is to come. So the Spirit, if you, if you want to get into like theological themes, the Spirit is an inbreaking of what's coming in full someday. The Scripture is a down payment. Pardon me. The Spirit is a down payment. The Spirit is a guarantee of the great coming harvest. Even, even with us possessing, even with us being indwelt by the first fruits of the harvest, the Holy Spirit, we still groan. We groan as we suffer. And we groan as we suffer awaiting the fullness of the harvest that the Spirit is the first fruits of. Look at the words of Paul at the end of verse 23. As we wait eagerly for the adoption of as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So you've heard it said from the pulpit, and if you study uh, Scripture, you realize there's, you, you have to familiarize yourself with the concept of the already and not yet. It's already here in some ways, very much so. But it's not yet here fully. And we see that here in regards to adoption. Verse 15 tells us of the chapter, we've been adopted. And yet here in verse 23, he says, we eagerly await for 
our adoption. So there's a fullness yet to come. When does the adoption of the co-heirs fully come? Great question. On the great day of resurrection. When body and spirit are reunited. When we stand in God's presence embodied. When we receive the fullness of our inheritance. The fruits of the fullness The completing of the adoption is the full redemption of our incorruptible bodies among a freed and renewed and worshiping creation. We will stand body, spirit, and soul with a freed creation worshiping Christ the King forever. That's what's coming. And and that's what we have to... God God says that's coming. And yet, there's a category where we can't fully comprehend the greatness of that. So we have to take God by faith. And we have to say, God, just help me live in light of that. Help me see the punishing nature of these sufferings in light of what you said is immeasurably great in comparison. Brothers and sisters, are we eagerly awaiting that day? So our third point, both we and the creation are groaning as we are awaiting for this coming day. Then Paul brings us to our fourth and final point. Hold your applause. That day is our hope. That day is our hope. Our hope ultimately isn't in the next call from the doctor will be a better call than the last one. Although we hope for those things. There's nothing wrong. We're we're praying for those things. But there's an ultimate hope. An ultimate hope that transcends, an ultimate hope that transcends dealing with this sin-laden, broken, original creation. And that day is when God remakes it so all of the things that cause us struggle and pain and trial and hurt are done away with. Paul says that day is our hope. And Paul tells us to be patient. It's coming even though we can't see it. Verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. So when God turns the lights on and you cling to Christ, the fullness of your hope isn't simply simply in your sins being forgiven. Though that's part of it. That's the gateway that ushers you in. It's not simply in the fact that you're not going to go to hell. Though that's a pretty big deal. The hope is someday, as 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 you suffer for Christ, as you deal with the brokenness of this creation, the hope is you're going to participate in the new heavens 
and the new earth in God's presence someday. That is the hope in which we've been saved. What sustains us in this suffering? It's something we can't see. Or at least fully see. We see, there's an inbreaking. We see, we see bits and pieces of it. We see, a re, we see a remaining beauty in creation that still takes our breath away. We, we see the kingdom of God present among us by the, by the merits of the first fruits of the Spirit. We, we, we taste of it in some way. Not totally absent. But someday it's coming fully. We hope in the glory to come. And it's coming. Why do we know it's coming? Because God promised that it's coming. And on my scorecard, God's batting a thousand. He hasn't missed yet. Even though God, even though we can't see it, God has said it. He has given us the Spirit as a down payment, so we must believe it. We must believe it. And when we do, when that faith doesn't waver, all of a sudden, hope carries us through the suffering. We suffer, but we suffer in hope. We groan but we groan in hope. A hope in what we cannot see, but what God has assured us of. And Paul says that it is 100% assured. So we patiently wait for God. We wait for God's timing. Because at the perfect time, at the perfect time, and I don't know about you, there's, there's a real big problem here. I really want my time, and God's time never matches my time. So I'm wrestling with God. But in God's perfect time, He will remake us fully. In God's perfect time, He will remake the entire creation. We are, to use language from chapter 2, we are to patiently endure. We are to keep the hope of the coming glory ever before us. So the path to glory is suffering because we are with, we are in the Christ who suffered. Because we live in a creation that is straining from the futility to which it was subjected. But Paul would say, hold on. Set your sights on Christ. Recognize that he is right beside you as you suffer. I will never leave you or forsake you. And if we needed, if we needed an extra measure of assurance that we don't walk through this alone, we get another encouragement with the first verse of next week's passage. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We ain't alone in this. Sure, it's hard. It's hard. But God is with us. 
If we could preach the rest of the, I might just do it now, Pastor Worley. If we preach the rest of the chapter, God is for us. There's nothing that's going to separate us from God. That is our hope as we go through a suffering age. We have to believe, brothers and sisters, that what's coming is much greater than now. So let's help each other keep that before us and patiently wait with hope for the revealing of Jesus Christ in all of his glory. Paul said elsewhere, comfort one another with these words. Let's pray together. I would invite the musicians and the communion servers and the whoever else wants to come on up here to come to the front of the auditorium at this time. Boy, Father, we are... Um, our breath is taken away by what Christ has done for us. Father, it is awesome to get a glimpse into the immensity of our salvation. Father, we are so thankful for the forgiveness found in Christ. Individual salvation found in Christ through repentance and faith. And yet, Father, oftentimes you are pleased to give us this grand look at how our redemption is just a part of your desire through Christ to redeem the entire creation. When everything that is bad, everything with which we suffer, everything that causes us to stumble will be banished as we enter into the perfection of the new creation. We enter into the fullness of our adoption. We enter into the fullness of our salvation. Oh, it's not worth being compared. And Father, help us to believe that this indeed is momentary and this indeed is light compared to the coming weight of glory because of Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name.